If you're new to our church, uh, we go, our tradition is to go through the Word of God line upon line, which means we, we will take a book of the Bible. We did Romans. We just finished Romans. We're in First Peter now. And at our church, we take the first word of the first verse and we go from word to word, line by line through the whole book. You know, sometimes that takes us a little while. We'll, we'll spend a year or two or three <laughs> in a book, but that's okay because that's not our goal. Our goal isn't to get through the book fast. Our goal is to read it so we understand it. And then when we understand it, we see how it applies in our life. We see how we can obey it. And when we see how we can obey it, something amazing happens. Suddenly our faith isn't just something that is, we have on the weekends. It's something we have every minute of every day. And we find power that we never knew we had. We can do things we never thought we could do. We can stop doing things we never thought we could stop doing. We become new men, new women. Uh, very exciting things. So that's why we spend uh, we study the Word of God that way. We are going to do that the two weeks uh, that John is gone. We're going to go line upon line, but not through a book, just through a chapter. Matthew 14. So if you if you have your Bible and want to turn to Matthew 14, some of you at, at every service, some of you have electronic copies like that one on your tablet or on your phone. So I guess technically you don't turn. You tap or you swipe, right? So let's turn, tap, or swipe our way to Matthew 14. I picked Matthew 14 because it has two of the most famous miracles Jesus performed. So if you've been a church person most of your life, like me, these are stories you know probably by memory. You know them so well. But I know you're going to be blessed because I thought I knew these stories really well too. I cannot believe, oh my gosh what the Lord has taught me as I have studied this this week. So I know the Lord will bless you in this study. And if you're new to, to Bible study or new to church, then this is still good because you've, you've probably heard these stories referenced somewhere. So you'll be, they'll be familiar to you. And then I know that God will bless you as you realize, wow, there's a whole lot more here than I thought. So we'll look at the first miracle this week, and then we'll look at the second miracle next week. This passage today, the first 21 verses of Matthew 14, is going to ask us a question. The scriptures are going to ask us a question. And let me tell you what it is so you can be thinking about it. Here's the question. What do you have with you right now? What did you bring with you right now that God might use to touch somebody's life for Christ? And maybe more than one person, maybe ten, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe a million or more. What did you bring with you that God might use to do that? You know? Hopefully you will by the time we finish this passage. Uh, so you, you found Matthew 14. Please, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we pray for Pastor John. We ask you just to bless him. Don't let him miss us too much, Father. Let him just relax and enjoy where he is with his wife. Bless him with the best time possible and safety too, Father, please. We pray for those... High schoolers and junior high schoolers up at camp. Father, just bless Rob as he teaches them. Bless their worship team. Bless these young people to hear your word more clearly than they ever have before. More than just having the time of their life, Father, let them be, this be the weekend that really transforms who they are and what they're going to be in you. And now, Father, as we open your word, wow, we never, ever want to open your word and just take it casually. We come to you, Father, opening our Bibles, asking you, please, dear Lord, teach us as you always do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 14, 
has a great beginning. This would be a great beginning if it was a motion picture. It's not a motion picture, but let's read it. Matthew 14, let's read the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work at him. Okay, these first two verses probably took place in the Capitol building that Herod built for himself right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Herod was a tetrarch. He was like a governor over the district of Galilee. And if you could picture the building in your mind, it's a Roman-looking building. There'd be Roman guards and there'd be citizens coming and going that have business with the, with the state. And somewhere inside this building, Herod was having this meeting with his advisor. Okay, we're going to come back to that. But the first, uh, this verse begins with the words, at that time. So we should stop for a minute and say, okay, now what time is that time? At that time refers to the things that have been leading up to this moment. It's the things you would read uh, previously in, in Matthew. Um, in a nutshell, here's what's happened. Jesus has begun his first year of public ministry. So he's about 30 years old. And wherever he went, he was teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and doing amazing miracles so that people were gathering from all around. His popularity was skyrocketing. He was the, the talk of the, the, the region, except for one place. When he went home to Nazareth, his hometown, they rejected him. We see at the end of Matthew 13 that he went to his former friends, neighbors, and schoolmates, and they were not impressed with him at all. To me, I believe chapter 13 teaches us why we should never go to our high school reunion. <laughs> no matter what Jesus did, they just were not going to believe in him. They would not accept him as their Messiah. They could not deny. In fact, they asked each other, where did he get all that wisdom? Where did he get those godlike powers? But in their mind, they could not put their faith in him because to them, their minds were already made up. He could never be more than just the son of the carpenter that grew up in their town. So Matthew 13 tells us that Jesus did not do very many miracles there, not because he didn't love the people, but because of their lack of faith. That is said for us in Matthew 13. And that right there is an amazing mystery in the word of God that we don't have time to get into right now. But here, here it is. Almighty God, with perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect power, has decided to work in concert with us. And he uses our faith to be a channel of his love and his power. And when we have faith, he pours his love and power into our life so it can go out to others. But if we have little or no faith, it shuts that channel down, turns it off. God has chosen to work that way. Matthew 14, Herod didn't think Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah either. Here, remember, he's, in, he's meeting with his advisors. He's, they, they, he was saying to everybody, oh, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. Clearly, the language suggests that he was agitated, excited, and, and, and nervous. He was probably pacing. He was probably walking back and forth. He's probably waving his arms, pacing and smoking. I just made that up. I don't even know if they smoked back then. Well, sure they did. They had camels. <laughs> so Herod heard these reports, and he said, this is... None other than John the Baptist, who's come back from the dead. Why did he think that? We're going to see that in a sec. First, let's make sure we understand who Herod is, because there are a bunch of Herods in the New Testament, and it can be really confusing. 
But let me explain to you who this Herod is in, uh, in the chapter we're reading in Matthew. You probably have heard of his father. His father is known as Herod the Great. If you've ever heard a Christmas story, then you know about this Herod, because this is the Herod that was ruling Judea when Jesus was born. And remember, the wise men came from the east, and they were looking for the Messiah, and they went to Herod, and Herod said this to him in Matthew 2.8. Herod said to the wise men, Oh, yes, go and search carefully for the child. Search for him carefully. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. The wise men weren't called wise for nothing. They knew baloney when they saw it. They knew that Herod had no intention of going to worship the child. He wanted to kill the Messiah because the Messiah would have, been, would have been a threat to his throne. The wise men followed the star to Bethlehem. There they found the child Jesus and they worshipped him and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know that story. And then they were warned in a dream, do not go back to Jerusalem. So they went home another way. They bypassed Herod. And the angel of the Lord also came to Joseph and said, Joseph, take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And you'll be safe there until Herod the Great is dead. When Herod the Great figured out he, has been, he had been outsmarted by the wise men. Here's another life lesson, by the way. If, if you're ever dealing with wise men, expect them to outsmart you. Herod became furious. And he gave the order to kill every Jewish boy two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. And that horrible order was carried out. Herod the Great was an evil man, and unfortunately, he had offspring. When Herod the Great died, his territory was divided between his sons. And Herod Antipas is the one we're talking about here, and he took over the region of Galilee. This region of Galilee is where Moses, not Moses. How did Moses get into this? Where Joseph and, and Mary and Jesus returned returned to, ne to Galilee after Herod the Great was dead, and they settled in the little town of, that we just talked about, Nazareth. And that became Jesus' hometown. That's why he's known as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. But as we heard, his hometown rejected him. So Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch. That means he's the ruler over a fort. He's like a governor. He had Perea and he had Galilee. And these are the regions where John the Baptist and Jesus carried out most of their ministry. But Herod Antipas was just as wicked as his, as his father. Here's a little more background you need to have. One time Herod Antipas went to Rome, and he went to Rome to meet with his brother Herod Philip. I'm not making this up. There, while he was meeting with his brother, he fell in love with his brother's wife, a woman named Herodias. So Herod Antipas enticed his sister-in-law to leave her husband, his brother, and come home as his wife. You following all this? The problem is Herod Antipas already had a wife. He was married. He was married to the daughter of a neighboring king. No problem. With a swipe of his pen, he divorced his first wife so he could marry his sister-in-law and have a new wife. Sounds like reality TV, right? I mean, if you're tired of the Kardashians, meet the Herods. So Herod Antipas was ruling when Jesus began his first year of ministry. And when he heard all about the things Jesus was doing, he seemed to get very nervous. He seemed to have a guilty conscience. And he said, wait a minute, I think Jesus is really John the Baptist come back to the dead. Let's see why. In verses 3 and 5 of Matthew 14, Now Herod had arrested John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, 
but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. John the Baptist was a straight-shooting preacher. He rebuked Herod publicly and repeatedly for his illegal marriage and illegal divorce. You might imagine that Herod did not appreciate John's point of view. So he had him bound and thrown into prison. He was afraid to kill John because he was afraid of the people. However, his new bride, Herodias, was out for blood. She was cold and she was cunning and she knew how to bide her time until she could manipulate things to get what she wanted. Let's read on in verses 6 to 7. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Okay, so Herodias had a daughter. Probably would have been 15, 16 years old or 17. She was a teenager. And Herod threw himself this little birthday party. In Mark's gospel, it tells us he, he invited his um, high officials, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So do you get the picture what kind of party this was? This was men only, eating and drinking all they could hold. That room was flowing with alcohol and testosterone. And the mother sent her teenage daughter in with a little birthday surprise, a little dance. I want to put this delicately. The young lady was not schooled in the art of ballet or tap. Her dance was of a kind that would appeal to drunken men. And her obscene performance did exactly what her mother knew it would do. Herod was so impressed that he made a big old loud promise in front of everyone that he would give his stepdaughter whatever she wanted. I mean, can you, can you picture it? I kind of picture this stinky banquet hall and him staggering to his feet, probably had to wipe wine and whatever food he had on his face with his sleeve and put both hands on the table to, to steady himself from the wine and pound his goblet because he wanted to get everybody's attention. He's going to make a big old announcement here. And in front of everybody, he promises to give his teenage stepdaughter anything she wanted. Let's stop and think about that. I know this happened a long time ago, but a teenage girl is still a teenage girl. What do you think she wanted when her rich, powerful, new stepfather said, I'll give you whatever you want? What do you think she asked for? Full disclosure, I've never been a teenage girl. But I would think she might have asked for her own custom chariot with custom wheels. Jewelry. Or maybe she would have gone and, and, and brought Herod all the fashion scrolls she'd been keeping and show him all the latest fashions and say, I want a whole new wardrobe and my own princess castle to store it in. What did she ask for? I want to read you what Mark's gospel tells us because he gives us a little more information. In Mark 6, 22 to 24, this is sort of a parallel passage here to, to Matthew. We read, the king said to the girl, that's Herod, said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Poor girl. What a pathetic puppet. She did her dance. Her rich stepfather said, what would you like? And she had to go outside and find her mommy to ask her, what should I say? Well, her mother had an answer ready for the daughter. 
And if you know what happens next, you know that the mother was thinking ahead. Matthew 14.8. This is the only service that got that joke. Uh, Matthew 14.8. Um, Matthew Prompted by her mother, the daughter said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. In Mark's Gospel, in Mark 6.25, we read that she said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on the platter. I bet that banquet hall got real quiet real fast. Bet you all the raunchy laughter and after dinner belching and all the stuff the men were doing stopped. I bet you could hear a pin drop. I bet you you could hear the king swallow when she asked what she asked. Let's read on. Verses 9 to 11. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Herodias was shrewd enough to make sure she did this perfectly, set her husband up, make it immediate, make it in front of everybody so there's no way he could back down in front of his guests or wait till later when he sobers up and changes his mind. He made a foolish promise, but he kept his word, not because he was a man of his word, but because, as the Bible tells us, he didn't want to look weak in front of his guests. He was probably a little afraid of his wife, too, I would imagine. Charles Spurgeon notes that like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought of as weak. So Herod and his wife caused the death of the greatest preacher of repentance in the ancient world. How could God let them get away with that? History tells us that a few years later, God did balance those books. Would you like to know what happened to Herod and his wife? Remember I told you that Herod was married before and he divorced his first wife, who was the daughter of a neighboring king? The neighboring king was greatly offended that Herod humiliated his daughter. So the angry ex-father-in-law came against Herod with an army and defeated him in battle. After that, Herod's more powerful brother, Herod Agrippa, in Rome, decided that his brother, Herod Antipas, was a traitor to Rome and had him, him and his wife banished to Gaul, a, a remote, it would be like going to Siberia, just a remote province. And in Gaul, Herod and Herodias committed suicide. All of this that we've been talking about, Jesus is traveling in his ministries, his being rejected in Nazareth, and having his friend John the Baptist beheaded, all sets the stage for one of the greatest miracles Jesus performed. It is so important to God that this next miracle we're going to read about is is recorded in all, all four Gospels. Let's see why. Let's read about it. Verses 12 to 14 in Matthew 14. John's disciples came and took John the Baptist's body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. No doubt, the Lord felt the pain of losing a family member, especially in such a brutal way. But Jesus always sought the will of his Father in heaven, so he wanted to take his disciples away so they could rest 
and he could be alone with God in prayer. Throughout his ministry, this is what Jesus did all the time. He would always go alone with, to be with his father in prayer. He'd be gone for days sometimes, sometimes just for an hour or more. Wouldn't you have loved to gone, be sitting there and listening to Jesus pray? What did that sound like when Jesus was praying to the Father? You know, as I was studying this weekend, it hit me um, that God Almighty is offering you and I the same intimacy he had with his Son. God invites each one of us to spend as much time as we want alone, one-on-one with him, just him and us, him and I, him and you, in prayer. Jesus' first year of public ministry was exhausting. And his hometown rejected him and his cousin was murdered. He gets in a boat, sails across the, 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 the body of water, but it wasn't that big. People could see where he was going. So everybody he left just followed on foot. And I'm sure as they traveled, they picked up more and more people. So by the time Jesus got where the boat was going, he, everybody was there. Now, I can imagine this could have been irritated the Lord. If it was me, I might have said, oh, brothers, sisters, I love you. I do, but I've been burning a candle at both ends. I'm exhausted. You know, my cousin was just executed. Um, my town rejected me. Please, I need, a, I need a day to myself. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. But the Bible tells us the Lord had compassion on the people. This word compassion is important. In the Greek, it means his whole, Jesus' whole being was stirred to its lowest depth when he saw the people. He could see they were sheep without a shepherd. They needed healing physically and spiritually. Jesus cared about those people from the bottom of his heart. So put it, he was easy for him to put aside the things he wanted to do. God wants us to serve his people like Jesus did. You know, I've heard people say, I'm involved in ministry, or I'm busy with ministry. I've said those things myself. But we're not called to be involved. We're not called to be busy. We're called to have compassion. We're called to care from the bottom of our heart with the beautiful people that God would bring into our life. The crowd was so big that it took Jesus all day to teach them and heal them. Let's see what happens next. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. The sun was setting. Jesus and the disciples were in a remote, faraway place. People's blood sugar was crashing. The crowd was probably getting ugly. They were probably getting crabby. Maybe their stomachs were growling. Maybe the children were fussing. And the disciples realized no food trucks were coming. They hadn't hired a caterer. What would you do? How would you handle that problem? Well, they got together and came up with a plan. They thought it would be best to send the people away to find food for themselves in the neighboring town. Can you imagine being an innkeeper in one of those little towns, remote little towns? And you're, it's supper time, and you've made dinner for yourself and, and your family and maybe three or four guests. So you would have a full house. And there's a knock on your door. And you open the door, and there's a line of people as far as you can see. And, and the guy in front says, uh, yeah, we need 5,000 orders of stew and bread to go with extra napkins. This was the plan the disciples came up with. You see, 
the glaring flaw in their thinking? You see the huge detail they left out? Yeah, they were in a remote place, so this was um, rather impractical, their plan, but there's something worse than that that they left out. They came up with their plan without including Jesus. The Son of God was standing right there. They didn't go to him to ask Jesus, what do you think we should do, Lord? They came to Jesus with what they thought of. Here's our plan. We got this one. Here's our plan. You know, when I first read this, I thought, what fools they are. I'd never do something like that. And then I realized, no, 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 that's not true. I've made that mistake many times. Or I have forgotten to pray because it's crunch time. When you have to make a fast decision. I mean, the sun was setting. They had to do something. Jesus was teaching. He was busy. Oh, my gosh, we've got to do something fast. We can't send the crowd away in the dark. What should we do? What should we do? I know, send them away. It's hard when you only have a second or so to make a decision to say, wait a minute, first thing I'm going to do is pray. That's hard to do. So I kind of get it. You know, these guys made a snap decision. Or, second possibility, maybe they thought, yeah, look at Jesus there. He looks really busy. He's doing what he should do. He's teaching and he's healing. Let's leave him alone to do that. This is a housekeeping issue. This is feeding the people issue. We don't need to bother the God with this. We'll figure this out ourselves. I've made that mistake too. Decided that there was something that God wouldn't care about. Too small, too mundane. Third possibility, maybe the disciples just wanted to get rid of the problem. <laughs> you know, this is classic human thinking. What's the best way to get rid of your problem? Make it somebody else's problem. Let's send the people away. Let's let, let's let it be the problem of the village people. Not, not the ones that sang YMCA, but the people that were in the villages. Let those people deal with it. That was their plan. But we're going to see what we call a problem is often the very place where God is going to do something special and miraculous in our life. We'll see in a moment what the disciples would have missed had they sent the problem away. Fourth possibility And this might be the one that hits the nail on the head. Maybe they didn't come to Jesus because they thought there's nothing Jesus can do about it. They'd seen Jesus turn water into wine in Cana, but they'd never seen Jesus feed people like this in this place. He could heal the sick, but this is a whole new problem. This has got to be too big for the Lord to deal with. They were exhibiting two-dimensional thinking. They were just looking left and right. They never looked up. Have you ever done that with a problem? I have. You ever find yourself, maybe you're there right now, in a situation that is so complicated, so messed up, it feels like an impossible no-win situation. (sighs) And you think, I'll pray, but I don't even know what to ask God to do. And what's God going to do anyway? How's he going to solve this? What can he possibly do? And what God can possibly do is anything and everything. We're going to see that God does things way beyond our imagination, and what looks hopeless to us is nothing hopeless to God at all. The disciples did not include Jesus when they hatched their plan, but let's give them credit. They came to Jesus before they launched their plan. They need high marks for that. They said to Jesus, let's send the crowds away so they can go in the villages and buy themselves some food. What did Jesus think of their plan? Get ready for, to me, what might be the funniest line in the entire Bible. This week, we're looking at the funniest line. Next week, we're going to look at the funniest scene. 
I think, there is in the Bible. But let's stay with the funniest line. Let's read it together. Let's go to Matthew 14. Let's start at 15 and read to 16. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Come on, that is funny. Jesus has the best sense of humor. I bet their jaws dropped open. I bet they were dumbfounded. I bet they looked at each other and said, I don't think Jesus understands the situation. Unless these people have acquired a taste for sand and grass, we've got nothing to feed them. What are we supposed to do about it? Do you ever feel like that? The Lord has asked you to do something, and to you it seems crazy, seems ridiculous. If you'd be honest, if you bowed your head in prayer, your prayer would be, Huh? What? Lord, you want me to do what? Why me? How, how am I going to, what do I have to, how would I, pot, Lord, I have no idea. If you've ever felt like that, then you know how the disciples must have felt. Faith for us, let's be honest, faith comes hard. Worry and doubt comes much easier, especially when we can't see what the Lord is going to do in our life. When Jesus told the disciples, you give them something to eat, he was teaching them, and he was teaching you, and he was certainly teaching me a powerful life-changing lesson. Could the disciples give those people something to eat? The answer is no. Not unless they relied on Jesus. That, to me, is life-changing. That's a game-changer. When God asks us to do something, He's not asking us to do it because we can do it. He's asking us to do it because we, if we rely on Jesus, then he will do it through us. Huge change. That's why they should have come to Jesus in the first place. Now, Jesus could have also chosen this occasion, this is an idea I might have had, to teach the crowd the value of fasting. But Jesus had compassion. And Jesus knew this wasn't the time for spiritual food. This was the time for real food in real tummies. Let's read on. Verse 16 and 17. Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. In John's gospel, in John 6, 7 to 9, we get a little more information about this miracle. We find out that Philip actually answered first. One of the disciples, Philip, answered him and said, it would take more than a half year's wages just to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. That's how big the crowd was. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how will they go among so many? <laughs> Love Andrew, but he had to feel stupid. I mean, come on, picture yourself. You have to feed everybody in the Staples Center, and there's no food there, and you find a boy that's got five small little loaves, and two little fish, and you have to go to Jesus and go, well, Lord, I, I've got something. I found this. Here it is. You have to be the one to say that. Clearly, the disciples had taken an inventory of their resources. They had done a head count, and they knew they were in trouble. Don't miss what Jesus says next, because this is the key 
for the whole thing. Let's read uh, verses 18 to 19. Jesus said, Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Bring them here to me. That's what Jesus said. This is the key to the entire passage. Jesus wasn't disappointed they only had that little bit of food. He did not say, what? What are you bringing this to me for? Come back when you've got something I can work with. Jesus already knew what they had. He already knew what he was going to do with it. The Lord knows exactly what you and I have in our bank and in our tank. And he never asks us to bring him something we don't have. He only asks us to bring him what we do have. If that little boy had kept his lunch to himself, there was nothing to work with. They brought it to Jesus. You know, sometimes I've said to the Lord, I I don't think I can do what you're asking me to do. I, I can't do it. I don't have the time. I'm not qualified. I don't have the experience. I don't have the talent. I don't have the resources. But the message here is we don't need to tell the Lord ever again what we don't have because he already knows. All we need to do is bring him what we do have, even if we think it's nothing. We don't have to tell Jesus I can't because Jesus wants us to know he can. The disciples had no idea how to make food appear, but that's not what God asked them to do. Jesus didn't ask them to make food appear. He said, you give them something to eat. And that's exactly what ended up happening once they came to Jesus, brought what they had to Jesus, and listened to him and obeyed what he said. Then they were able to give the crowd something to eat. We should do ourselves a favor. Don't you deserve a favor? Let's do ourselves a favor. Let's stop telling the Lord what we don't have. Let's stop being distracted by, the well, I don't have enough of this or enough of that. Let's just stop. Let's just, let's just bring whatever we have to him. That's all he asks. That's all he requires, and that's all he needs. Jesus can take the smallest, most mundane, ordinary things and bless it beyond our wildest imagination. And I'd like to give you a modern-day example of this. Can you bring the slide up, Daniel? I want you to meet someone. You don't know her, but she has touched your life in many ways. This is Rosie Taylor. She was a friend of my mother's for 75 years. Mom's sitting here in the third row. <laughs> I knew Rosie my whole life. As, I, as our family was growing up, Rosie worked at a little church in La Mirada. She was the bookkeeper and the secretary. She was a church lady. And she invited my mom and dad to church on many times. Every time she invited my mom and dad to church, my dad got mad. It wasn't nice making my dad mad. He, he got angry, and he didn't want to go to church because he was raised in a home that was really strict. There was a strict, joyless kind of religion in their home. At least that's how he always described it to me. So by the time he was old enough to get out and get in the Army, he vowed never, capital N, never step foot in a church again. He'd had it with that stuff. So one day, 50 years ago, just about had to be 50 years ago, Rosie was typing the church bulletin and she was typing the message with the sermon topic. And a name came into her mind, Larry Briggs. Larry Briggs, that's my father's name, Larry Briggs. 
But bless her heart, she picked up the phone. She called my mom, talked for a few minutes. Said, <laughs> she laughed and said, I, I feel like you're supposed to come to church, right? You're supposed to come this weekend and hear this message. She kind of laughed, embarrassed about saying it. Maybe the way that Andrew felt when he brought the loaves and fishes. Maybe a little silly, a little embarrassed, but I think you're supposed to come. My mom said, oh, Rosie, you know it makes Larry mad when I ask him. I'll ask him. So that night, my mom asked, told Dad about the call from Rosie and that she wanted us to go to church. And yes, it made, her, made him mad. I was in the next room. I was nine. I was painfully, painfully shy. The thought of going to church scared me. Almost made me cry. It made my stomach hurt. It's like, oh my gosh, go to church? I don't know anybody. They're going to look at me. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to know what to say. I've never been in a church. What do you do in a church? Nothing good is going to happen in a church. I don't want to go there. So I did something I shouldn't have done. I interrupted. I walked into the middle of their meeting and I said, Church, I won't go to church. Little did I know, that was exactly what my dad was about to say. Those words were on his tongue. But when he saw me, his nine-year-old son, put my foot down for the family, he put his fist down on the table and said, we're going. <laughs> and at that time, we did go. And I did not care much for Roselva Taylor then. Why did she have to call you and tell us to go to church? Couldn't she have kept her nose out of our family business? We've never been to church before. Oh, we're happy. We don't need to go there. Well, we went there became our home church. We loved that church. I loved that church. Shortly after that call, my mother gave her life to Jesus Christ. A little bit after her, my father, Iron Will, never stepped foot in a church again, gave his life to Christ. Then on March 30, 1964, I gave my life to Christ, along with my older brother, Steve. Our whole family saved. Because Rosie made a phone call. The Lord took her little bit of fish and bread and multiplied it and an entire family is saved. But there's more. Sometime after that in high school, I fell in love with the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. She came to know the Lord. We got married in that church. We now have two daughters. Their husbands, our, our grandchildren attend this church. Four generations from a phone call. But it's not over. For as long as I'm alive and my children are alive and their children's children, this goes on until the Lord returns. My brother became a worship leader in a church in Montana. Montana people, Montanians, are being touched by Roselva Taylor's phone call. And here we are 50 years later talking about it in a church in Anaheim Hills. As far as I know, Rosie never taught a Sunday school class, did she? She never went to the mission field. But when the Lord wanted the Briggs family to go to church, Rosie made that call. And that's a call that I'll be grateful for for all eternity. I want to tell you something really sweet. Uh, last Sunday, I could not come to the church baptism because I was at the memorial service. And the family asked me to share, and I got to tell everyone at the memorial that story. And nicer than that, years before that, I called Rosie, and I told her that. She's like my mom, really just loves the Lord, wants to focus on the Lord. You never want to focus on her. But I just had to tell her, Rosie, you're my spiritual mother. Anything I do in my life for Christ is because of you. She was crying. She didn't believe it. She couldn't hear it. <laughs> she didn't, well, she heard it, but it just overwhelmed her. But 
we have to understand the Lord multiplies what we have. So back to the question. What did you bring with you today that the Lord can use to touch someone, maybe a whole family, maybe generations of a family, maybe thousands of people, maybe millions? You know what you brought? Could be anything. Do you think that one little boy had lunch out of that whole crowd? Do you think when, you know, obviously his Jewish mother wanted to make sure he had food with him, right? Do you think when mama was making the food, she thought this lunch would be recorded in the word of God forever? Did mama think this little lunch would feed thousands of people? Did mama think we'd be talking about that lunch thousands of years later? If the Lord can do that with loaves and fish, what can he do when we give a smile to a stranger or a visitor at this church or we go introduce ourselves? What can the Lord do if you have 15 seconds today and you you see somebody in need and you pray for them? 15 seconds, 10 seconds. What can the Lord do with that prayer? What, What can the Lord do with your cell phone if you call somebody that needs to hear from you and you give them a word of encouragement? Let's finish the story, uh, verses 19 to 21. And Jesus directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the loaves and the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. They ate until they were satisfied. The word in the Greek means glutted. They were full. They didn't just eat enough. Oh, that's a nice snack. That'll tide us over till we can get home. No, they ate all they needed. They ate till they were full. They stuffed themselves. And they had plenty left over. The Bible says there were 5,000, about 5,000 men there, but not counting the women and children. So most people estimate there'd be about 20,000 people there that were fed. That's why this is 5 plus 2 equals 20,000. That's the new math. Where did all that food come from? It didn't come from the basket. We knew what was in the basket. The basket just had five loaves and two fish. We also know that not only were the disciples clueless, they were also foodless. So they didn't come from them. The food that fed that crowd came from the hand of God. And it always does. This is such a great picture of what it's like to serve Christ. You see it? First, we just bring him what we have. We have to bring it to him, even if we don't think we've got anything. We feel like our pockets are empty. We just bring him what we have. Second, the Lord blesses it. And this is the fun part, because when he starts multiplying it, this is where we should just expect the unexpected. Like, Rosie had no idea what that call would be. I bet you she was shocked, Mom, when we walked into church. I'd love to see her face. We never know what he's going to do with the little things that we can do. Third picture of this is then the Lord blesses us by be, letting us be part of his work. The Lord let Jesus let the disciples be part of his miracle. They got, to, they got the fun part. They weren't in manufacturing. Jesus did that. They were in delivery. They were the delivery service. They got to go out and look at everybody's face. Can you imagine the faces of 20,000 people eating food that hadn't been there a second ago? See their faces when they saw it. See their faces when they tasted it. See their faces when they were full. That's what they got to do. That's the joy of serving the Lord. Whether you serve a message from a pulpit or teach a message a lesson from a classroom or you serve a pancake or a French toast today from the kitchen or a handshake at the door 
or you pray with people over there, or you sing from up here, or you serve from the tech booth back there, or you serve in your school, your class, your, your workplace, your neighborhood, wherever you go, you get to be part of what God is doing. It's why there's no room, <laughs> no room for pride. <laughs> it's just, but there's a lot of room for joy and celebration just to be a part of that. The disciples wanted to send the crowd away. But Jesus took the big problem and turned it into the greatest picnic of all time. That's what the Lord does. He takes problems that are so big to us, so complicated, things we don't understand. And he does the unbelievable. He does the unthinkable. He does the unimaginable. So what do you have with you? What do you have with you right now? Gosh, it could be anything. I, I would hope and I would pray that from this day forward when we leave here, we will leave as men and women that bring whatever we have to Jesus. We just give it to him. This week we saw what the Lord can do when we give him very little. Next week we're going to see what the Lord can do when we say very little. Can I have the prayer team come up? The prayer team's ready. We're going to close in prayer now. And then after prayer... Uh, we have members of our prayer team that are, are going to be around here. Yes? Is that where you're going? Okay, <laughs> over here. And they are here for you. If there's anything that you would like to pray for, they would like to pray with you. My sort of rule of things is, if there's something that I'm thinking about, it's worth praying about. And if there's something I'm worried about, then it's definitely <laughs> worth praying about. But you may just need to, maybe you want to celebrate something. Maybe you just want to share something wonderful. They'll, they'd love to Pray with you and praise. Maybe you have a big decision. Maybe you have a little decision. It doesn't matter. Whatever is on your heart and mind. If you would like somebody to pray with you tonight, today, these people right here would love, love to pray with you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come as your people. And look, Father, our hands are empty. Or, or at least we think we don't have very much to offer. But you know what we have. And oh my gosh. You love us so much, you will bless what we bring to you. And you will do things that we never, ever thought possible. Thank you for that promise, Lord. I pray that each one here today would leave just with the joy of giving you what we have. So that from this day forward, we'd be men and women that just come to you with everything. And we just come to serve. Come to serve you in any way that you want us to go, any place, anywhere. Thank you for this day, Father. I pray your blessing on everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.